and welcome to the BS with Friends podcast, a subsidiary of the Bader and Simon Gallery scheduled to open in Cincinnati, Ohio in early 2025. I'm your host, Tamara White, founder and board president of Bader and Simon. In this podcast, we will discuss art, social justice, and well, basic BS with friends. Our approach is a bit lighter and irreverent, and as a warning for those with young ones nearby, there is a chance that colorful language might be used from time to time. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the episode. Emma Logan is an artist and educator based in Petaluma, California. She currently teaches ceramics at UC Berkeley, Mills College, and Solano Community College in what she calls the adjunct hustle. Prior to getting her Bachelor of Arts degree in ceramics at San Francisco State and her MFA in studio art at Mills College, she had a career as a nonprofit administrator and even had an early stint as a park ranger. In Emma's artwork, she combines a research and process-driven practice with organic mediums like clay, wool, and paper to make sculpture and installation work. The tactile nature of these chosen mediums is an important part to her areas of focus, which includes geographic identity, land use and access, agriculture, and sensory memory. Equally as important for her work is visceral engagement with the viewer through touch, sound, smell, and taste. Recent works have highlighted disparities in land and water access for agricultural practices, cultural appropriation of art and ideas through ancestral relationships, the overlap between community isolation and food scarcity, social pressures on the agricultural market, critique of extractive practices in relations to land use, and the sensory relationship of memory to cultural identity. Emma, thank you so much for being here. I wanted to start by having you tell us about your practice of combining art and specifically ceramics with food. Uh, Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I will just jump right in. Food and ceramics for me are a natural pair. We eat off of ceramics, we grow our food in clay-rich soil, and a surprising number of kitchen tools end up in the ceramic studio and vice versa, though I promise I wash them really well first. Um, For me, there's also a tactile relation. Clay is moldable, just like ingredients in a recipe. They're both hands-on. And at the end of the day, whatever you make is impacted by the qualities of what you're working with. It's interesting as you're saying this, it all makes perfect sense, but I've never really made that connection before. Can you tell us how you got interested in this, you know, combination and and this work? Yeah, absolutely. I've always been obsessed with food. As a little kid, my family would joke that I'd been born with the map for every grocery store in my brain. You could just let me loose and I could find anything you wanted in a hot second. So it's always been a happy place for me thinking about food and being in food spaces. I would have been amazing at Supermarket Sweep, RIP. I also grew up in an agricultural town. So I live in Petaluma, California, which is the self-proclaimed egg basket of the world where we still have a butter and eggs day parade. And even though our highest grossing ag product is wine, food and food production are a huge part of the everyday. 
because they're not tucked away as part of some sort of unseen process, we feel the effects of the climate crisis in real time connected to these things. Example, we belong to a CSA that had to make the hard decision a year ago to skip production altogether because of the drought. And thankfully, a neighbor came through with water access, but we're already seeing what foods will and won't be available as the world's access and priorities for potable water shifts. And I just, I think we all make art about what is impacting our lives. And this is just the thing that is in my face the most and that I have the most like gut response to. So I think that's why I can't stop. And you work with a lot of organic mediums, and it seems that that must influence where you're living influences that. And you sort of alluded to why this is important to you. But I presume, you know, just based on what you're seeing, and how climate change has impacted the access for some of this, can you talk about also, what makes it challenging from a materials perspective, working with these organic mediums? Absolutely. I mean, I think part of what draws me to the different organic mediums is the physical connection. So that's, for me, the artist, right? The feeling of squeezing clay or running my hands through wool reminds me of sticking my hands in a pot of dried beans at the farmer's market when I was little, or you know, just everything in life. I think touch is really important especially now. We had these few years where everybody was online, which has a lot of pluses, but one of the negatives is not being able to touch each other and things. So I just enjoy it. So there's that. But then it's also conceptually connected to the work I make, right? Not to be cheesy, but I'm using materials that come from the land to make work about land. And that can be its own challenge. One of the personal challenges I run into it is my concern about how mining clay, processing clay, processing wool, all the different materials I work with, how that impacts the environment. There are definite challenges there. And so I try to do all of my work with secondhand materials. So all of my clay for the last four years has been reclaim or recycled clay that's been left behind by other makers. I also um, use recycled fabric in my work, and I try really hard to make sure that I'm not adding to the big issue here, which is caretaking the environment and making sure we have these materials moving forward. And then we have them for the right things, right? There is an abundance of clay in the ground, but it's doing a job in the ground, including growing food. So there is a connection there for me. I also feel like non-organic materials just don't have the same visceral pull, which is super key for my work. And I just, I don't know, I've tried working with other materials and it just doesn't feel the same. It doesn't have the same connection for me. I also really love working with clay because it's a collaborative material. I think this is also a challenge, but is also a plus, which is I can use all the skills and smarts I have to try to make what I want out of clay. But at the end of the day, the clay has its own parameters its own restrictions of will it, what it will and won't allow. I have to plan out what work I'm going to do at each stage of clay dryness. And the when I can do the work depends on the weather, the environment I'm working on, the physics of my own body, what other work is around the clay. So there's no, I can't say I'm going to do this work on Monday and then I'm going to do the next stage on Tuesday. I can do the work on Monday and then I have to check. Can I still do it on Tuesday? Do I have to do it Wednesday? And I think that that allows me that pushback allows me to refine my ideas and work out what's really important in the work that I'm making. 
I love that too, because it's as if, you know, you mentioned a collaborative process and it feels like the clay is a participant, you know, that it's a participant in the whole process that you can't force another person to do something without their permission in a way. And the clay, it just feels like adds such a collaborative element to, to what you're doing I also will say as an artist, I really, myself, and when I do work, I find myself having a lot of anxiety that I'm putting more shit in the world or I'm using materials that if all the artists in the world stop using, what would that look like? And so I really respect what you're doing and the Mm -hmm. reasons for it just from a climate justice perspective. You mentioned- you know, that you use a lot of elements that include touch and smell, sound, taste. How do you integrate those elements into your work? Yeah. I mean, I think we're all, as I said, we're all hungry for touch, but I also think that there is this disruption that happens in the traditional don't touch anything gallery space, right? If we introduce these other factors and I know I want to touch art all the time, So it's different based on whatever I'm working with. Sometimes I'll have people interact with a piece by picking it up and maybe filling a vessel with water and placing it someplace. Or I've had work people could go inside and the wool that I made the piece out of dampened sound, dampened, has a different smell to it. And I just, I think that it gives an approachability to the work that's needed for the conversations I want to have. I'm not looking for a sort of abstract relationship with art where you look at something from afar. I'm looking for people to physically interact with it. I think that that gives you a different relationship. Um, It's also fun to trick people. So (laughs) I once made these super realistic looking paper mache lemons that I scented with lemon extract. It could be as simple as that, but it grabbed and held attention in a way that I, the piece would not have done without it. Right. So there is, there's a way that we engage with something differently when there's an unexpected sensory engagement. So um, I think as we in the art world continue to engage with people in new and different ways, that will shift a little bit, but a huge part of it is breaking that barrier between people and art and hoping to have a conversation that is a little bit deeper because of that. I thought of an art, when you mentioned the lemon, there's an artist and I've completely blanked on his name, but He creates these large sculptures and uses a lot of kind of blingy materials, but it's basically where he's creating like a moldy lemon or molded food. And, and, but it also reminds us all of the impermanence of us and food and everything around us. And so it's a very provocative way of presenting something. Absolutely. And then go talking about food and um, food scarcity, as well as land yep. and water access. Um, for agricultural purposes, you mentioned the area that you live in and how that's impacted, you know, the mm-hmm. CSA boxes and such. And it's such an important part of your work. Can you talk about this interest and how you're focusing on it within your work and, and the research that you conduct? Sure. So I grew up in the state ranked number one for food production in the United States, but my family didn't always have enough to eat, right? The vegetables I remember eating growing up were canned corn and green beans, which 
I don't admit to everyone, but I still really like canned green beans. <laughs> and now I live in a, a world where I could bend your ear with recipes for celeriac and turnips for days. So I have a very personal connection to this idea of having access to food and the time and energy available to make it. It's not just access to food, right? But we live in a country that produces a surplus of it, paid for in part by our tax dollars. And yet people go hungry every day, even in these spaces where food and food production is such a visible part of everyday life. And our foodways are responsible for environmental pollution and a number of health issues that are common. So I think the I'm trying to dig into how we got here, but not as much as I am trying to dig into where we go from here. We're at a pivotal moment when it comes to the environment and the climate crisis, which I know we're all thinking about. And our agriculture has to change. But we don't seem capable as a species, human beings, of making a decision based on just information we've researched. So even though I'm totally a research nerd, I spend ridiculous amount of time at the library and on the internet falling down rabbit holes and can talk your ear off about a number of things based on where we are. But the core I'm hoping with the work that I'm doing is to start sort of shorter, easier conversations. So I want people to be thinking about how we spend our water as an example, because if we glorify a food as a beacon of health and wealth, like almonds, which I've made a lot of work about, we're making choices about how land and water are going to be used. Um, because whatever is going to make money is how we're going to do it. And we run into issues like people planting almond trees in drier areas of California that can't support them. And almonds take over a gallon of water each almond to grow. So the we're making a decision by choosing to to raise almonds up as this this you know, health deity. And we should be thinking about how that impacts everything else. If we're using all of our water to grow almonds, because of course the almond industry is strong and not interested in buying my work, which is totally fine, but they are, they're going to demand water access. Well, where is that water not going? Is that part of the reason my CSA farm didn't have enough water because they're accessing the water table? We need to be thinking about how these things impact what's going on. And we need to be able to have conversations that don't raise hackles that don't get people defensive about their way of life um, or, you know, family traditions and things like that. So that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, and there are all kinds of other issues tied to almonds in particular. Again, once I've researched something for a long time, I could fall off the cliff talking about it. But I think at the end of the day, I want to make sure that we are making decisions about how we use land and water in a way that goes beyond commodification and really feeds the health of, of humanity. I almost feel like the land and water argument, it's not, I don't mean to trivialize guns, but it feels like it's in that same vein of don't take my land, don't take my gun, don't take my beef. Don't, you know, that there has to be a way of easing into the conversation. I think I, I saw a ridiculous statistic of the low percentage of people that actually think climate change is real or yeah, it's it, it, that most people just don't believe the urgency that, that really does exist. And 
So I think it's very intriguing to think about the art that you're making, if that can sort of start a dialogue about it in a non-threatening way. Because I think it's sort of fear that when you open up the conversation, then people suddenly think that they'll never be able to have a certain thing again versus figuring out ways to sort of compromise and, and ease back on, on certain things. And I know that for Bader and Simon, you and a colleague of yours, AC Pinella, will be co-curating a show a around some of this that will be coming up. Um, do you have any other projects that you can tell us about or that you're working on? Sure. I have a few, <laughs> you know, they're always in different stages, right? There's the one I'm doing a bunch of research about, but not making anything. There's the one I'm making. And then there's the one that somebody's actually interested in showing. <laughs> so you never know what you have, but I'll share two. One that I'm working on is actually a collection of the fruits and nuts mostly that will be extinct as options for us if we don't get our water consumption under control. And, you know, I love what you said about a non-threatening question. Like, that's the goal. I want people to talk about it. And to get us there, you have to, I mean, I'm dealing with relatively heavy subjects if you boil it down to it. And the goal for me is always to find a little bit of levity and a way to present things formally so that it, it doesn't feel like an attack. So I'm working on these future extinct fruits and, and nuts, which we're not to the levity part yet. We'll get there. <laughs> and then a uh, second piece, uh, our installation I'm working on is a series of winnowing baskets contrasting Western or colonial farming practices with the indigenous agricultural practices here in California, which is something I've been working on for the last year or so. And um, I suspect it'll be a series of works. I tend to get super obsessed with an idea and run with it until I've worked through everything I need to. Uh, but for now, I'm over here making baskets. Baskets and, and uh, ceramic nuts. <laughs> yeah, they're ceramic baskets, which is sort of a weird thing. But, um, you know, I don't know that we can always explain ourselves before the work is done. Sounds interesting. And uh, so at the end of our podcast, we ask questions, the same questions of our guests. We recently mixed it up and, and changed them. So the first of our new questions is who you would like to find yourself stalled with in an elevator. I think this one was a super easy question for me to answer just because I'm um, a big fan of Agnes Martin, an abstract painter from the 20th century. She's not only my artist fashion inspiration, so I like to look at her artist photos and She's in a rocking chair, often with overalls on. It feels very much my vibe. But I'd love to hear all about how she kept true to her formalist aesthetic while being a key player in the abstract painting world. And since she really wasn't a fan of guests, being trapped in an elevator is probably the only way I could make that happen. <laughs> She'd have nowhere to go. I know. <laughs> so then maybe I know somewhat what the next answer will be? I don't know. Um, what art piece have you seen recently that had an impact on you? I'm actually, I want to share a piece that I've actually seen many times in my life. It was a hugely formative work. It's Hung Lu's piece, 
Ju Jin Shan, and it is uh, Ju Jin Shan is the Chinese word for San Francisco, which means Old Gold Mountain. And Hung Lu died recently, and so I've really been thinking about her impact on my work. And there's something aesthetically that ties our work together. This is a piece that is 200,000 fortune cookies on top of two railroad tracks crossing. And the junction of the tracks is referencing this sort of cultural intersection of East and West, all the Chinese immigrants who died building the transcontinental railroad. But it's also about the use of land. And there's just this way that this piece keeps coming back through my life and um, influencing what I'm doing through definitely aesthetics, having both a formal con a formal layout and concept is not something we get to see enough right now, in my opinion. So yeah, I just I can't let that one go. So that's the one I have Can to share. Can you repeat the title of the piece? Yes, it is Ju Jin Shan. Okay. Spelled J I U J I N S H A N. Okay. I want to look that up. It sounds really interesting. It's great. Who inspires yeah. you? I get inspiration everywhere, but I want to say in my students and my clay community, uh, I love talking about making and it's easy to stay in my head as a person who falls down the research rabbit hole. Um, but when I talk to other people about clay, it leads to touching the clay and touching leads to actually building my own work. And so the people I'm in the studio with inspire me to get out of my head and actually make the work that I've been researching and developing. So I, they're my closest inspiration when it comes to making work. Okay. What is something on your bucket list that would surprise people? I know I'm not alone <laughs> in saying I've never really thought about a bucket list, but I have this list in my head of all these things I'm going to learn to do when I retire. So I'm going to treat that the same way. And one of my probably not as obvious choices is that I would love to be part of a barbershop quartet. That is not what I would have expected. So that's a very awesome answer. <laughs> Somehow could visualize that though. I could see it happening. And the, the hats, last... the outfits, come on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. The last question is if your life had a theme song that played every time you entered a room, what would it be? Again, lots of answers. I'm a huge music fan. I make playlists for all of my classes, but I think if ever a song was my song, it's Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is. On the face of things, it sounds depressing, but the song is really about living life as well as you can, given whatever is facing you. And that feels very real for me and for my work. And it's also a song that I turn to when I'm having a super hard day or my state's on fire or whatever else is going on. Um, so that would be my theme song. Excellent. That's great. It's one of those uh, old, old timey artists. I, you know, I grew up listening to exactly, um, or I should say my parents and grandparents yep. grew up listening to. So thank you so much for being here. I just want to ask if people want to look at your work, do you have Instagram or a website or anywhere that people can go? Absolutely. Instagram, I'm emmalogan.art. And my website is Emma Logan Ceramics. Okay, great. Well, thank you again. And good luck with all your future projects. I think what you're doing is really important. 
Thank you, Tammy. I appreciate your time. You too. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to reach out and let us know your preference for flat or sparkling or anything else you'd like to share, you can find us on Instagram at Bader and Simon Gallery or on our website, baderandsimon.com, where you will find information about current exhibitions and programming. Until next time, have a fabulously artistic day.